There's so much to rejoice and be glad in. And we're starting a, a small series called Champions for Christ here at the 2.30 service this month. And the title of my sermon is Our Living Hope. And before we get into the portion of scripture that I want us to explore this afternoon, I want us to think about hope. You know, it's a marvelous quality to possess. Amen? When you think about hope in your own life, what thoughts, what emotions start to emerge in your own thinking? I am full of hope. One day, one day, Arsenal will win the premiership again. Can I get an amen in the house? Amen. I'm full of hope. You might say that's quite futile. But here's the reality about hope. It's incredibly fragile. But at the same time, it's incredibly resilient. I don't find very many people in life that totally lose hope. We lose measures of hope. We never totally necessarily lose hope. And so I want to give us a bit of a framework this afternoon as we go on this journey about what hope actually is. Hope should be, in your mind, a courageous expectation that God will deliver on his promises and demonstrate his faithfulness to you in your life. And so the portion of scripture we're going to be examining this afternoon is 1 Peter 1. It's going to be verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. I'm reading the ESV this afternoon. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of our souls. This is widely accepted that Peter wrote it. There are one or two people that argue he didn't, but I firmly believe that he did. And there's no one better positioned or better qualified to talk about this than Peter. If you know your Bible, you will know that he is quite literally the best person, the most qualified to talk exactly about the portion of Scripture that we've just read there. And so there are six learning outcomes for us this afternoon. Number one, you are deeply loved by the Father. Amen. Verse 3 confirms that. It's God's grace, God's love, and God's mercy that we're even born again. And so if you are a believer here today, it's because God chose you long before we chose him. Perhaps you were here and you neglected him. You ignored him. Let's separate religion and relationship for a moment. Think on this. God radically pursued you long before you knew about him. That's the hallmark of a loving father that he doesn't stop in his desire, in his pursuit for you to come into his presence, to come into his knowledge, to come into the fullness of his rich, relentless, perfect, unconditional love that is freely available to us as sons and daughters of God. 
He poured his love and his grace into everything long before we even knew about it. You know, the day that you become born again is the day that you become conscious in your mind or your heart that you've made that declaration of faith. But you may have made it many, many weeks or months before. And so I think for us in the journey that we need to remind ourselves that we are deeply loved by the Father. Thank God that we don't get what we deserve. Amen? His grace surrounds us and he has been so, so good to us. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. Peter also, in verse 3, says that we are born to a living hope, hence the title of my sermon. I want to put a personal touch on it, our living hope. And so, point one for us in our consideration in this area, it's personal. It's available to each and every one of us. It is equal in its power and its presence in our lives, and it's available to us if we choose to embrace that living hope. It is alive If something's living, by definition, it's alive. If we are living, we have a living hope in God, then it's functioning, it's vibrant, it's flourishing in every part of our lives. So a question for us, what is your hope ultimately in today? Is it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Is it in Christ in me, the hope of glory? Or is it in something or someone else that isn't God? I have some news for you. It's going to fail you. Amen? But it is also a hope. And hope stretches simply beyond having wishful, futile thinking that something's going to happen. Because there's no uncertainty attached to the hope that Peter is talking about here. It is a concrete and certain truth that is gloriously guaranteed to happen because it is grounded in something that's already happened. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Something that happened in the past. The tomb is empty. Hallelujah. And 2,000 or more years ago, a number of ladies, women, visited the tomb in the hope of anointing Jesus' head with oil and found it empty, which tells us, friends, that the resurrection is not an event. It is a person. It is Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And therefore, that's where our hope has to be anchored in today. And that's where we can enjoy that majestic, glorious, freedom-filled future because it's based on only one reality. Because if the resurrection is true, then Peter takes the advance forward and says that we can enjoy an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Take a moment, pause, think about that. You have an inheritance that has been stored up and kept for you in heaven that is, according to Peter, three attributes. He doesn't, interestingly here, I'll get to this later, he doesn't actually highlight the positive attributes. He highlights what the inheritance is not. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You know why? It's exactly who Jesus is. It reflects the heart of Christ. And so today is a glorious and victorious day. Jesus is alive. Hello, he's conquered death, hell, sin, and the grave. And therefore, we can have supreme confidence that we, we too will be with him for eternity, which means that you are going to be loved by the Father for eternity. Think about that for a moment. It's a good day, right? Think about that, friends. You are going to be loved by the Lord Jesus Christ forever. The Bible declares nothing can separate us from from his love. And yet here on earth, 
the definition of love is quite flimsy, it's quite conditional, it's shaped by seasons and circumstances, and yet here we find that the Father's love for us is so perfect and stretches far beyond our biggest disappointments, our biggest hurts and sources of shame and failures. It breaches every season, every trial, every circumstance to a point that we are going to live in that love forever. I don't think that we will be able to ever quantify God's love for us. And I think even here on this earth, we only enjoy a brief moment of what it will ultimately be in eternity. Because our hope is, should not be based on anything that we've done, but solely rooted in who the Father is to us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He's always with us. We need to know that our relationship with God is strong, it's healthy, it's flourishing, and it ultimately is a gift from Him, which means if or when your life is falling apart, run to the person that created your life. He will, you will find solace, you will find peace, you will find comfort and strength for the journey. And so really two outstanding promises emerge from this particular verse, that we have a living hope, but we also have a blessed inheritance. When we think about the world that goes on around us, it's largely hopeless, right? People are searching for a measure of hope, a semblance of confidence that they can really grasp and lay hold of in the season that they find themselves in. And as Christians, we have the answer. We don't have a hope, we have the hope, the hope, the living hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. So number two, our inheritance. Hmm. Verse four, remember that God has loved you because he's chosen to love you. Nothing will ever separate you from his love. And so we can enjoy that rich inheritance. And what Peter here attempts to do is to define or to describe it to us. No positive attributes are actually referenced. He only informs us of what our inheritance will not be like. So it won't be imperishable, which means it will last forever. In direct contrast to everything that you see here on this earth, it is undefiled, which means that it's spotless. It's without sin. It is perfect. Nothing needs to be added to it. Nothing can ever be taken away from it. It is complete in and of itself, and it's unfading. Now, if you own any white shirts or any light clothing, you're consistently having to put stuff in the washing machine to keep your shirts white, to keep your clothes bright. You think about your eyesight as you get older. You might have to wear glasses because it starts to fade. You think about many, many areas and aspects of life, things fade. And yet, we are told here our inheritance is, quote, un fading. Everything else will fade away, but our inheritance will remain strong, healthy, robust, and flourishing. Number three, God's power is at work in your life. Our loving Heavenly Father is going beyond simply safeguarding our future, but He is actually making a way, in verse five, for us to enter into it due to His power operating in our lives, by who God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Which means that he wants us to not simply have an awareness of it, but to actually access it, to enjoy it, to embrace it. It reminds me of Isaiah 54 verse 17. No weapon formed against us will prosper. Amen? It doesn't say that the weapons won't be formed. It says that they won't prosper. 
And so we need to lay hold of that reality in our lives, that God is always at work. God is always moving. God is always showing his power, his strength, his majesty, and his glory in our lives. We're just not often aware of it. And we need to become into that agreement where Peter makes it very, very clear here. These verses show to us that we may go through trials, but what he is ultimately safeguarding is our faith, which means that our faith won't evaporate under an examination. Our faith won't erode in a trial. In those moments, we start to see that the journey with Christ starts with a simple step. And when we think about any journey, we think about any relationship with anyone at any point, it starts with a journey. It starts with taking that first step, and then a second, then a third, then a fourth, and then you find 20 years down the line, you've walked 20 years with Jesus. You're going to go through some stuff. If you think about why did Jesus wash the disciples' feet? Because their feet would have been dirty. They would have worn open sandals or maybe not even any shoes. And that for us is a spiritual picture that if you've been on any sort of journey with Jesus, somebody's going to have to wash your feet at some point but it's always worth it. And I think that we need to remind ourselves that God's power is at work in our lives. The same power that conquered death, hell, sin, and the grave resides inside you. Amen. So God is bigger than your biggest trial. Amen. Now, when you think about something being guarded, whatever it is that's being guarded, it's got to be valuable, right? By definition. That's why there are security guards in banks that's why supremely rich people employ their own security detail, because they've got a lot of expensive items, which means that God sees your faith with him as valuable. If, you have, if something's having to be safeguarded, by definition, it's got value. It's precious. And God sees your faith, and he sees it as precious and priceless in his eyes. Therefore, he is going to safeguard that. He is not going to let your faith erode. Amen. He's not going to let your faith be be broken up or dismantled by the challenges and trials of your life. He is going to ensure that you reach your full potential in him. He's going to ensure that your faith is strengthened under your trials. And you may get to a point where you're like Paul. Actually, you want the trials. You almost seek the trials out because they strengthen your faith in God. Because God has never left you. God has never forsaken you. Which brings me to my fourth point, trials. It's broken into two sections. They are temporary, but I have some bad news. They will happen. <laughs> so if you think for a second today that you're going to be a Christian and you're never going to go through a trial, I have some bad news for you. The more you want to be like Jesus, the more you're going to go through the things that Jesus went through. And he went through everything. So ask yourself the question, do I want to be like Jesus? <laughs> but, he starts verse 6 with, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, I want to stop right here. He starts by saying, rejoice. So he knows what's coming. How many of us rejoice when we know a trial is about to emerge in our own lives? I don't know about you, but I'm jumping to like the next part of the section. How long is a little while? Like, who's debating this? Who's, who's going to define that for me? Like, I'm not interested in the rejoicing. Just tell me how long the trial's going to be, right? That's the easy default attitude that we take as Christians. I love the next part, if necessary. Who defines that? What you define as necessary, I, no problem, or vice versa. And yet we've been grieved in those moments. The trials that you face are temporary. Our God is eternal. 
Your trials may last a minute, a month, a year. But take heart, you will overcome them. All the suffering, all the challenges, all the heartache, the pain, the confusion, the uncertainty that is attached to the trials and the tests that you go through pale in comparison to the eternal living hope that we possess in Christ Jesus. Which means that we cannot escape or avoid the truth that the trials will come. They are inevitable. When we look at the world around us, now more than ever as Christians, we are going to have to stand up, we're going to have to step forward and defend what we actually believe. Not talk about it, actually substantiate and defend what we believe. And not just say Bible verses, but actually live a life that reflects the heart and scriptures that we read here. So who's up for a trial? Not so sure. <laughs> but here's the first part. In this rejoice. So the, the default position, the, a heart posture attitude that we must take is joy. And I love it because I want to break this down for a second. It does not say be happy. It says rejoice. And when I think about the word rejoice, I think about Psalm 16. I think about Psalm 118 verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Return to us the joy of our salvation. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Everywhere I read about joy in the Bible. I don't read about happiness. I read about joy. Happiness is a state, it's an emotion based on your circumstances. Joy is the posture, the condition, and the nature of your heart, irrespective of your circumstances. So Paul, Silas, in Acts 16, if my memory's right, they're in prison. What are they doing? They are praying. They are worshiping. What are they? They're rejoicing. The fact they're physically in prison. And what happens? Holy Spirit comes. Power comes. God's power is on display in their lives. Chains break. Prison doors fly open. Captives are set free. God does something in their lives. And I think as Christians that we need to have more joy in our lives. Amen? And today, what better day than Resurrection Sunday than to rejoice in all that God is and all that God has done. Number five, authentic faith. Verse seven. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold. Let's pause. Your faith under pressure, in God's eyes, is more precious than gold. Now, what is gold? We know it's a metal, but it, it has to be purified. It has to go through a refining, a furnace. It has to, all the iniquities, all the impurities, the other metals have to be burned up at whatever degrees in order for it to be gold, in order for it to be valuable. The less imperfections, the less impurities that are in that chunk of gold, the greater the value of that piece of gold. Consider that when you think of your own heart this afternoon. If you allow your faith to be tested, well, you won't allow, it's going to happen, but I'm being polite. <laughs> when you go through those challenges and trials, your faith is going to be tested. It's going to be examined. It's going to be explored. And you're either going to stand the test or you're not. Because only faith that has been tested is faith worth possessing. So Peter here is reminding us that in the midst of the trials, you can still find our living hope in Christ. Remember, trials are going to be permissioned and commissioned by God. And they produce two results if we respond with spiritual maturity. Number one, they will always, always, always draw us closer to God. 
because you will find yourself leaning in to his presence evermore. You will find yourself delving into the word, digging into his presence, spending time in that secret place like never before. So the first goal of a trial is to draw you closer to God. And God has a way of taking the broken things in our lives and raising them to glory, amen? So we can take confidence in that. However, if your faith is not genuine, the result is that you will distance yourself from God because you find no connection to the truth of who he is in that moment. If it is authentic, it will be fueled, it will be developed and maintained by God himself. Make no mistake, you cannot possess any authentic faith without any form of suffering in your work. Walk with Jesus Christ. Two, the trials will reveal the contents of your heart. Uh-uh. Not too sure about that. Have you ever thought about that? You think about certain scenarios, certain situations where people speak to you in a certain way or you find yourself in a situation where you're under pressure, where people are all looking at you and how you respond, what you say, what you do. And you just communicate. Under pressure, invariably, our heart is revealed. Under the stress and the strain, the trials, the tribulations, we find our heart is revealed. And that's often uncomfortable because we are not happy with what is being uncovered in those moments. We often will present a sanitized, cleansed version of our faith to people. So we take Philippians 4.13 out of context. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but I can't get to church on time. How's that working out for you? We need to be realistic, friends. We need to be honest with where we actually are because our faith has to be uncompromising, evident, and established in our lives. Faith is not a valuable faith until it's been tested. That is the faith worth possessing. Examine scripture. Right through scripture, you see example after example of men and women who served God, who loved God, who had incredible faith in God. Every single one of them went through more trials and more tests than probably all of us put together. And yet, almost every one of them, to a man, to a woman, passed that test because their confidence was ultimately in God. It goes further. The small matter of praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let me be brief here. So because you've overcome, you've endured all those tests, you are going to express praise, thanks, and glory, and honor to God. This will reach an augmented state in your personal walk when Jesus Christ is revealed. In that moment, our faith has been tested, rigorously examined. We have not been found wanting. That is a great result for us as Christians, not to be found lacking or wanting when our faith is under examination. But ultimately, our faith has to produce greater confidence, deeper trust, and a heightened sense of certainty in who Jesus is. And here's the best part. God promises to reward us for how we endure our trials. That should be a reminder for some of us here that are going through challenges, that God is going to reward us, not simply for getting through the trial, but how we can find ways to dignify the trial in that moment. Because our God is a rewarding God. He loves to reward us. So we endure those trials, our faith will be tested, but we will be rewarded either in this life or the next. We should get to a point where our, in our faith whereby we acknowledge that it is a privilege to suffer for Christ. Hmm. That's where Paul got to, that's where every one of the disciples got to. And finally, number six, 
true joy will always emerge in your heart. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. True joy will always emerge from God. You see that littered through scripture, not happiness that's fleeting and fading when framed against the joy that we can embrace in God. It's not based on circumstances, but it's based on certainty of who Christ is to us. And so I want you to think about for a moment, right where you are, who or what is your hope in? And before you answer the resurrected king, examine your heart, look at your life. Is there an area or an avenue of your life that maybe isn't fully surrendered to him? Is that why you're not finding that joy that you are desperately searching for? Can I encourage you? Reread this portion of scripture in your own time. You're going to have to go through some of the trials. You're going to have to embrace some of the challenges. You're going to have to overcome some of the obstacles that God or others put in your way. Our inheritance is reserved for us in heaven. Now, when God makes something reserved for us, there is certainty attached to it. We're not going to lose that. That's there for us. And therefore, we can embrace that. We can rejoice in that. We can be glad in that. And so what have we ultimately learned today? Jesus is exactly who he says he is. Amen. He and he alone is our true, our perfect, and our everlasting hope. Everything else has to fade away. It pales into insignificance. And as I said at the start, hope is incredibly fragile, but it's also incredibly resilient. And so let that resilience strengthen you in your challenges, where you are, where you find yourself today. You might be on the precipice of a, a catastrophic situation in your family or in your finances. God is still good. God still has a way of you overcoming those trials and those challenges, and it will be for his glory. But you have to root and anchor yourself afresh in who God is in your life. Jesus conquered death, hell, sin, and the grave for you, to give you that living hope. And so can I encourage you today, put your name against these verses. Explore them in your own heart. Ask yourselves, are you demonstrating that authentic faith? Or is our faith only deemed faith if it's not tested? Because we can claim to have all the faith in the world, but if it's not been tested, it's not worth possessing. And for some of us here, we need to embrace it. We need to come into that sense of God's plan and God's purpose for our lives, to see him for who he really is, that he is risen, that he is in charge, that he is sovereign, that he is Lord over every area and aspect of our lives. But I want to, to close really with a thought for us around the issue of hope. Our hope is found in nothing and no one else but the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters, I can assure you. And the more you find yourself stripping away, abandoning things, situations, people that you have placed subconsciously or consciously some form of hope in, that little section or area of your heart you will then give to God. 
and you will find that you will be giving more and more of your heart to God. And the more of your heart you give to God, the more hope you're going to have. But it's not a fragile hope that's based on your circumstances or your paycheck, on your status or how many likes you have on your social media. It's based on your identity in God. It's based on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's based on who Christ is to you. And that's why I'm very clear. The title of the message is Our Living Hope. He and he alone has to be our living hope. Everything else we have to abandon. But it's going to take courage. It's going to take authentic faith. It's going to take us recognizing that trials are temporary, but they will happen. It's going to take us dignifying those trials. It's going to take us understanding who we are as a son or a daughter of the Most High God. It's also us having an awareness of where our inheritance ultimately is. It's not found in what your mother or father may leave you when they pass from this earth. It's found in what Christ has already prepared and stored up for you in heaven.